Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Levitt, you know, I feel like I know you pretty well. And yet there's one essential fact about you that I have no idea. And I could guess. Mm-hmm. And I'd be... I'd have a 50-50 chance. But I'm just going to ask you... Edward? If you ever touch her against her will again... Don't do this! She's not sure what she wants. Don't do this! Let me give you a clue. Wait for her to say the words. Fine. And she will. Jacob, just go, okay? Are you Team Edward or Team Jacob? Team Edward, for sure. Why? So it was a long time ago that I read Twilight, but... I had a reaction to it that was different than any other person I've ever met, which is somehow Twilight had a very calming effect on me, almost like um, like enlightenment. <laughs> somehow when I read the book, it just allowed me to be a completely at peace with the world. It was completely bizarre. It was very noticeable, though. And I think it related to Edward and the the life of the vampires. So, So in the book, the vampires live forever, and they basically have nothing to do. And they also have decided to make choices about um, not following their deepest desires of, of um, drinking human blood, but instead making do and being civilized and, and drinking only animal blood. And there was something about that whole portrayal of the vampires which, which um, made me feel uh, a kinship with them. It inspired you? It did. No, it made me very calm and kind towards people for about three months. And then, I, you know, things always fade after that. Would you like to be a vampire if you could? I think I would want to be a vampire. That wouldn't be so bad. And would you rather be a vampire or a werewolf? I think I would want to be... Well, the, were, the werewolf... Yeah, I think I would want to be a vampire. I, I think that the vampires... I, I'm much more a vampire in spirit than a werewolf. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Levitt is my Freakonomics friend and co-author. He teaches economics at the University of Chicago. We were talking about the appeal of being a vampire. I like the idea of the timelessness of it. And 
One of the things that's happened to me, and I think maybe happened to you as well, is that as I've gotten older, the amount of free time I have has shrunk to nothing. And I wish I had much more time to invest and to learn. And the vampires have nothing but time. They just sit around, you know, they don't sleep and they can get everywhere in a few seconds. And and so they're very patient and well-learned. And I would like to have the the constraint of time lifted uh, at least for a while. But on the flip side, then you get stuck that if you get attached to things other than vampires, then you know that they're going to disappear very quickly. So you have to turn them into vampires. Now, considering that stories of the undead are fiction and supernatural fiction at that, what ideas or themes strike you as an economist as noteworthy? So to be honest, I have never thought for two seconds about the economics of the undead. In general, it seems like the operative motivation in many of the fantasy and science fiction genre is the removal of the normal constraints. And so in Twilight, for instance, all sorts of constraints have been removed. So there's no need for sleep and there's no need for money for the columns and they live forever. And so, and they can get everywhere so quickly that, um, that you can then begin to fantasize about what you do when you have no constraints. Of course, you need conflict. So they have a bunch of other things you have to worry about, like other mean vampires and werewolves and stuff like that. But what I find interesting in fiction is when the author can create an alternative universe that has enough similarities in it that you kind of can get on board with it. And yet it allows you to get excited about things. And so so Harry Potter would be the best example of that because that's a universe that's very parallel to ours and yet somehow things are very different and it's fun and playful to investigate that. So Steve Levitt, an economist, had never really thought about the economics of the undead, but, you know, he's hardly the only economist out there. Both Jim and I had an interest in zombies and vampires and other forms of the undead going back many, many years. That's Glenn Whitman. He's an economist at California State University, Northridge. And I also have a second career as a TV writer. I wrote for the TV show Fringe for many years, and now I'm writing for the TV show Matador. The Jim he mentioned is Jim Dow, who teaches finance at Northridge. In fact, uh, the two of us bonded over uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer when we discovered that we were both fans of it. And so, Glenn Whitman and Jim Dow decided to put together a book called Economics of the Undead, Zombies, Vampires, and the Dismal Science. It contains 23 essays by a variety of scholars with titles like Tragedy of the Blood Commons, The Case for Privatizing the Humans, and Investing Secrets of the Undead. I am not kidding. These are serious people taking on serious topics. For instance, whether a zombie apocalypse could actually be good for the economy. Right? That's worth thinking about, isn't it? After all, we spend a lot of time thinking about the economic impact of war and natural disasters. We saw, for example, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and parts of the Northeast after Sandy, that unemployment rates drop when labor is being devoted to, to cleaning up a mess. That's Steve Horwitz. Charles A. Dana, professor of economics and department chair at St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. The chapter that Horwitz wrote, along with Sarah Squire, is called Eating Brains and Breaking Windows. This refers to a famous 19th century story called The Parable of the Broken Window by the French economist Frédéric Bastiat. It was part of an essay called That Which is Seen and That Which is Not Seen. But it's not just a parable about a broken window. 
to economists, it's known as the broken window fallacy. In the original essay, Bastiat imagines, you know, we have a small, quiet village and a young hoodlum throws a brick through the window of a house, right, shattering, shattering the window. And, of course, the owner of the house that had the broken window is unhappy about it. And the people gather around and they cluck their tongues about how terrible this is and, you know, kids today and all that. And then finally someone says, well, this is actually good because it's going to be generating business for the glazier, the window maker. And that's income for the glazier. And the glazier will have, you know, maybe $100 that he can spend on maybe a new pair of shoes and the shoemaker will have some money. This line of thinking leads people to say... Well, maybe it's not such a terrible thing after all that the young hoodlum has broken this window. And so that's an argument for why you might think that a disaster could actually be good for the economy. But remember, it's the broken window fallacy. The fallacy, of course, is that... You cannot look just at what is seen. You also have to see what is not seen. In other words, the business activity that would have happened if it hadn't been for that disaster. If the homeowner doesn't have the window broken, the homeowner's got $100 to spend on something else and has a functioning window. So you can see where the economists are going with this theory as it relates to the undead. How does it work for the zombie apocalypse? Well, it's absolutely the case that if there were an invasion of zombies, there would be a great deal of economic activity generated. Sure, people might rush to fill up their gas tanks and buy a lot of groceries, probably stock up on supplies like axes to crush the zombies' brains. You know, all the preparations that it would take to prepare for that apocalypse. We'd have to have cleanup of the bodies and the property destruction and so forth. All those expenditures, while sure, they create jobs and they create economic activity, they don't really create wealth. If we hadn't had to spend all of those things fighting off zombies, we would have been able to spend all of those resources doing other things to make our lives better. Food, clothing, shelter, flat screen TVs, whatever it might be, right? And so on that level, it's in a sense a wash. Plus, of course, there's the fact that we have all of the death and destruction wreaked by the zombies. All those exchanges of, you know, from buying shotguns at Walmart to cleaning up the bodies to rebuilding houses afterwards are all about either maintaining or getting us back to where we were before. What we want, what economic progress means, is people trading and exchanging in ways that continually get them new and better things that they desire more. And so we are actually worse off for the zombie apocalypse, which is, of course, what common sense should tell us. But sometimes people will find a way to talk themselves into some pretty unusual propositions when it comes to economics. up on Freakonomics Radio. Let's say you love vampires, but you don't love the violence that comes from vampires attacking humans for our blood. Might there be a solution? If vampires had the choice to buy blood, they would probably do so. And if you're a vampire-loving economist hoping to meet a vampire-loving mate, where's that supposed to happen? Uh, in the nerdiest of possible ways, I met her at Comic-Con. One more thing. If you enjoy the biting commentary offered by Freakonomics Radio, why don't you subscribe? It's free and easy at iTunes and with other podcast apps.
Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example, combining assertive on-road performance with signature Range Rover refinement and commanding all-terrain capability. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Range Rover Sport redefines sporting luxury an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Combining dynamic sporting personality with the peerless refinement you expect, Range Rover Sport communicates power, performance, and agility. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Hello, uh, Professor Gara Pujol. Yes. Hey, it's Stephen Dubner. How are you? Oh, hi, Stephen. Uh, very well, thank you. Enrique Guerra Pujol is a professor of law at the University of Central Florida. His chapter in Economics of the Undead is called Buy or Bite. As a legal scholar and as a professor of law, let me just ask you this. What's the problem with vampires and how would you propose to fix it? Well, when we look at vampires, what I call the vampire world, I would put my thumb on the main problem, violence. It just, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, you you see a lot of gory stuff going on in the vampire world. Um, But here's what it comes to it. As a legal scholar, right, I'm not just here to describe a problem. On a uh, normative perspective, I'd like to solve it. And I think I have your solutions right there under our nose. It's let vampires buy blood. And so I wrote a piece where I talk about this possibility and um, explain how markets work, uh, why black markets tend to be violent, not just in the vampire world, but generally, and um, describe, 
hey, why, um, why it makes sense for vampires to want to buy blood and why some of us, probably not all of us, why it would make sense for us to sell blood. Okay, I'd like to read um, to you a, a portion of the introduction to your piece. You write that most members of the vampire race resort to coercion, compulsion, and confiscation to get what they want the most, blood. But why, you write, why are vampires such parasitic predators? Maybe we are asking the wrong question. Maybe we should be asking, why don't vampires offer to buy our blood instead of taking it by force? So do you have an answer to that question? Why don't they, in the literature, offer to buy blood? Two words, legal failure. Economists often talk about market failures when certain voluntary transactions impose costs on others or on society. Here I'm talking about legal failure. And what I mean by that is when the law for a wide variety of reasons, prevents transactions from taking place in the first place, prevents market transactions. And what it really comes down to is this intuition that, you know, if vampires had the choice to buy blood, um, they would probably do so. You think so, really? You don't think that that goes against the nature of vampires? Isn't what makes vampires fun or attractive if one is attracted to them? The fact that they go and take via the neck, the living hot blood, as opposed to walk into, you know, the equivalent of a California pot dispensary and buy <laughs> a little packet or a tablet or a capsule. That wouldn't be any fun, would it? <laughs> yeah, I am certain that some vampires do uh, obtain a thrill, right? A rush of uh, sucking people's blood by force. But what I'm getting at is that not necessarily all vampires, in fact, sort of a subtext of my piece is that Vampires may not necessarily be all evil or all, all bad. So you're saying that vampires are essentially driven to violence by the lack of a legal market in blood. Exactly right. Exactly right. So his solution is an obvious one. A legal market for blood so that vampires don't have to attack us. When you take blood by force, you run the risk of retaliation. And so what I describe is that a lot of vampires, you know, um, might say, well, wait a minute, you know, taking blood is not necessarily free, right? I'm generating a risk of retaliation by vampire slayers. And so maybe if I have the choice of buying blood, I might just prefer the peace of mind, right? So it's the same reason why somebody buys right, pot down the dispensary as opposed to, you know, in some shady uh, dark alley. That's a great point. As Milton Friedman might have said, if he were in on this conversation, there ain't no such thing as a free blood suck. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you for a moment to describe the um, legal status of blood sale or purchase in the U.S. and elsewhere. Just to put it simply and lay it out there, um, really blood transactions are under the what I call the shadow of the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization, um, though it's merely a you know private organization, right, um, does actively encourage all nation states to prohibit the sale of blood. And some countries, for example, our friends in the United Kingdom have acted on that prohibition. It's unlawful to sell blood. In the United States, though, um, it's a little trickier. We have something um, from 1984, the National Transplant Organ Act, which prohibits the sale of human organs, uh, human tissues, but does not address the question of blood or ova, sperm, those type of uh, uh, genetic material. And so in the United States, technically, right, um, you own your own blood, 
And you could say there's no express prohibition against the sale of blood, but at the same time, you have sort of this dark looming shadow where other types of genetic material and human organs, the sale of which are prevented. And so it's just, and this is why I address in the paper, one category of legal failure, simply uncertainty, right? Not saying one way or the other, which sales are allowed and which are not. And when there's a legal uncertainty, how do people tend to behave. I realize it's too broad of a question because right. people behave in a lot of different ways, but what what sort of incentives or disincentives or tendencies toward antisocial behavior are created by legal uncertainties? Two points. Number one, if there's a demand for a given good or service, the demand doesn't just go away just because the law is unclear or just because the law, in fact, prohibits um, a certain transaction. And, and of course, a case in point would be you know, drug transactions or prostitution or what have you. Um, so demand is there. In the vampire world, of course, the demand is all the more compelling because it's, the need for blood is a part of the vampire physiology. But here's what else happens. Not only does demand not go away, lawbreakers will crowd out law abiders. And what do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of persons will say, well, you know what? Law's unclear. I'm not going to sell my blood. I'm not going to buy blood. This is not clear. What if the deal goes wrong? What if I'm not given the type of blood that I was promised? I can't really sue um, in the courts to enforce this type of agreement if I do. The outcome is uncertain. And so what you end up happening is People who are willing to take this type of risk, lawbreakers, generally speaking, will come in and fill this demand. And when you have lawbreakers filling in the demand, that's sort of another source of violence, right? And so uh, that's why I think it's important that the law get it right. And if we want to address violence, consider legalizing this type of market. All right. I love your idea. I love the idea that the violence of vampires is created by a legal failure um, by which there's no blood for them to purchase or barter for, whatever. But I hate to rain on this awesome parade of yours, but wouldn't fixing the problem as you propose also destroy the literature itself? Isn't the whole beauty of vampire literature the illegal and dangerous and violent procurement of said blood? And are you willing to live, Professor Garapujol, with being the person responsible for killing off the vampire genre? That is a great question. But here's the deal, right? Just like we have legal markets in, um, you know, selling and buying cars, right? There's still car theft, right? There's always going to be people who, um, for whatever reasons, right? And that's a whole other literature, um, may want to still steal cars. So I still think, I still think I may kill off some small part of the literature, but I still think, you know, there will be um, cunning and uh, thrill-seeking vampires who will want to live outside the law. And so there should still be hope for uh, aspiring writers and whatnot. Earlier, you will remember, we spoke with one of the book's editors. My name is Glenn Whitman. And I'm an economist and also a TV writer. Whitman wrote two chapters about the romantic relationships between human girls and vampire boys. I've always been fascinated by applying economics to understand relationships, specifically speaking as a guy who is now married, but I had a long period of singlehood. And it took me a while. I spent a while out there on the market. I wonder if you could share with us um, anything 
that you've learned, whether as an economist or just a plain old human being, from studying vampires? Something that's changed the way you live your life or think about anything? This is going to make me seem like one of those people who never changes and never learns a lesson. Uh, it, but <laughs> but it, it, the perspective that I brought specifically to the chapters about vampire human dating were really the lessons that I had already applied. They were already the way that I thought about human-human relationships. And now that's something that changed. It was as a result of thinking in those terms, thinking about uh, search matching theory when I first learned about it in, sometime in the late 90s when I was in graduate school. And that had an effect on me at that time. It made me realize the degree to which the idea of the one, uh, the single person that you are destined by the universe uh, to end up with is kind of a silly concept. So uh, instead, it's a much more reasonable way to think about it to say, look, even if the kind of person I could be with is only one in a million, that's still a huge number of people in a world of billions of people, right? And so that means what there really is, is a set, not the one, but the set, and what you're hoping to do is to land somebody who is in that set. And so that made me think in terms of uh, my dating strategy, how I would meet people in terms of trying to maximize the number of people that I could meet or at least find out about enough to know whether they could conceivably be in the set. So uh, doing that, you know, decreases the cost of actually finding somebody. Now, I, talking about it this way makes it sound like I was sitting around with pencil and paper and a spreadsheet. Yes, it does. Uh, yes, it does. But, and, and that's not accurate. That's not accurate at all. What my dating life actually looked like when I had one uh, was much like other people's. It involved a lot of going out to bars and meeting people. It really was just a mindset. And how did you meet your wife, ultimately? In the nerdiest of possible ways, I met her at Comic-Con. <laughs> and We've got to stop now. That's It doesn't get any better than that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> at the what? Wrath of Con party, we bonded talking over Buffy and Angel. Oh, man. That is a beautiful story. Uh, what is her name? Bryn. Bryn, you're a lucky lady. And um, Glenn, I'm sure you're a lucky guy, too. Extremely. Thank you so much for talking today. It was a blast. Absolutely. Hey, podcast listeners, on the next Freakonomics Radio, given the fever for corporate mergers and acquisitions, we were wondering, maybe the U.S. should merge with Mexico? Jim Cramer likes the idea. Look, that IPO, I want everyone in, and I'm willing to pay 20% above the price talk because I think people are short-selling Mexico because they think it is just a place where you just have lawlessness. They've not been to Mexico. They don't realize the immediate premium this deal is going to go to. But Vicente Fox, former president of Mexico, he isn't so sure. I see that close to impossible. It's not the wish either of the United States and his wonderful people nor is the desire of Mexicans in our great culture. We try to persuade him anyway. And we ask former White House chief economist Austin Goolsby what he thinks the idea. You'd have all the people in Mexico going, wait a minute, why do I have to listen to these bozos in the Senate anyway? Is that really better than what we had? Mm, Goolsby's got a point. But 
What if the benefits outweigh the costs? Welcome to a Mexico. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC and Dubner Productions. Our staff includes David Herman, Greg Rosalski, Greta Cohn, Caroline English, Susie Lechtenberg, and Chris Bannon, with help from Joel Werner. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or go to Freakonomics.com, where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.